It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. I'm told some magazine called Slate, which frankly, nobody's ever heard of, has a new podcast called Trump Cast. Sad. Really, really sad. It's about what they call the national emergency that is Donald J. Trump. You know, that has got to be the dumbest thing I've ever, ever heard. It's really, really unfair. Whatever you do, do not search for Trumpcast in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Don't do it. I'm telling you. I'm serious. Ignore Trumpcast. Not nice. I'm a nice guy. They're not nice. The Slate Political Gabfest is brought to you by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 50% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for Stamps.com and get a four-week trial and a $110 bonus offer when you use the promo code GABFEST. And by Audible.com with more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Get a free 30-day trial and a free audiobook at audible.com slash GABFEST. And by Tracker, a coin-sized device that locates misplaced keys, wallets, bags, computers, anything in seconds. Make losing things a thing of the past. Get 30% off your entire order by going to thetracker.com and using the promo code GABFEST. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gabfest for April 7th, 2016, the Does Bernie Sanders Know Anything About Anything edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. In the D.C. studio with me, John Dickerson of Face the Nation. Hello, John. Hi. Oh, that was sweet. <laughs> and joining us uh, from New Haven is Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. Hi, Emily. Hello, hello. On this week's Gabfest, is Ted Cruz headed for the nomination? We will discuss. Then, when will Hillary supporters stop saying that Bernie Sanders' wins don't matter? And also, when will Bernie Sanders say smart things about policy? Then, the Supreme Court issues a sweeping decision, kind of in a one-person, one-vote case. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. And in Slate Plus, where will I hide my shell corporation now? We will discuss places you can hide your shell corporation in the post-Panama Papers era. If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, get it by going to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. Don't forget, GabFest listeners, we have a live show in Atlanta, first Atlanta show ever, April 27th, Wednesday at 730 at the First Center for the Arts. There are still some tickets available at slate.com slash live for more information and tickets and also to get tickets to other Slate live shows. I just came up with an incredibly cool idea. So it's going to be so much fun for a live a live audience participation segment. You won't have to participate if you don't want to, but if if, if you choose to. David's setting expectations. I'm setting expectations way high. Too I'm just high. trying to gin up interest in people buying tickets because I just thought like I had my I had my clever idea for something that would be fun to do. So anyway, I'm glad you're feeling so confident and buoyant. This morning. Um, That's a good sign. Anyway, visit slate.com/live to get tickets for our Atlanta show on Wednesday, April 27th. Ted Cruz had a big win in Wisconsin. Big. Big, big win. A Donald Trump 
scale win in Wisconsin on Tuesday. On the Republican side of the race, the chances are increasing. John will tell us exactly how much for a contested convention. We have the New York primary coming up on April 19th, but that means we now have almost two weeks to wonder whether the Donald Trump movement has totally collapsed, if it has collapsed, what that means, or is this just a blip in a race to a Trumpian nomination? John, start with you. Donald Trump massively underperformed in Wisconsin compared to where I think people thought he would be several weeks ago. Uh, He's had a terrible few weeks. We've talked about his campaign manager's assault charge, bad things he's been saying and implying about women, just the usual Trumpian nonsense. But the last couple of weeks, it seemed more acute and damaging to him than it had been before. So did he actually underperform in Wisconsin, or was it just that Cruz picked up the non-Trump votes? Well, he underperformed to the the extent that he wanted to win. Um, Wisconsin was a state that is more like Iowa, which is a state where Cruz won. And so there's a lot of idiosyncrasies to Wisconsin that may make it hard to extrapolate big lessons about Trump. Um, So in Wisconsin, there is no real split between the establishment and conservatives because of all the fights that Scott Walker has had to endure. There is a unity in the Republican Party there where Scott Walker and the Republican Party and Paul Ryan and talk show hosts are all on the same page. That page was the not Trump page. So there was nowhere for him to exploit weaknesses in the Republican Party within the, within Wisconsin. There's also more conservatives, and they like a, a nicer brand of politics in Wisconsin than maybe in some other state. I'm sorry, more conservatives in the electorate there. Um, so it's set up pretty nicely for Cruz. But there were people who were saying the large number of working class voters in Wisconsin is good for Trump. One of the things in the, fi- in the exit polls that we saw is that Cruz won with high school education or less uh, voters. That's usually been the greatest predictor of Trump's success. The size of that group and how well he does with that group tells you if he's going to win the state or not. And so the fact that Cruz beat him there is interesting. Can that be replicated other places? The problem is that the places it has to be replicated are places that are really good for Donald Trump, New York, Pennsylvania, Maryland, Rhode Island. And there's also other noise in the system. So of the people who decided in the last few days, they told exit pollsters, Trump got 35 percent of that vote. Cruz got in the low 40s. So Cruz won by a smaller margin among those who who made their decision in the last few days than he did the overall electorate, which surprised me a little bit given how terrible Trump's week was. If this was the result of a last-minute fall-off for Trump, then you would have expected him, I think, to get less than, than 35%. But doesn't this go back to the old, does Donald Trump have a ceiling question, which is there was this period at the beginning of the campaign where it was like, well, his ceiling is 30 or 35. And then there was this moment over the last couple of months where people are saying, well, maybe his ceiling isn't 35. Yeah. Maybe it's whatever. Now it's now is the is the is the ceiling theory back in play? It depends. It, we'll see. He won't have a. He may not have a ceiling in New York or Pennsylvania, in which case he doesn't have a ceiling, you know, and he didn't have a ceiling in Florida. So it's hard exactly to figure that out. He didn't do well with women, but not as poorly as he did with women in other states that he lost. So I think the, the one number coming out of all of this that struck me and that might be weaponizable by the anti-Trump forces <laughs> is... Um, this number of people who said they were either scared or concerned about Donald Trump, the two combined, 58 percent of the Republican 
uh, Republicans who talked to exit pollsters said they were scared or concerned about Donald Trump. That was much bigger than anybody else. If Donald Trump is that scary, and I think his scary number was in the high 20s, is that scary to Republican voters? Imagine in a general election context where the electorate is much more moderate than your Republican primary voters, how an opponent could make them feel scared about, or people would just naturally feel scared about Donald Trump. That's a we know about all of his other problems in the general election, bad with women, bad with minorities. But that scared number, I think, is uh, is something out of Wisconsin that can be taken forward. I think a lot of the other stuff, we're just going to have to see whether it works in other states. And, the, and again, the problem is those other states are ones where Trump has a better shot. I mean, he's up by 30 points in the CBS poll in uh, in New York. Emily. Wait, so it's hard to imagine Trump's scary number going down. It's also hard to imagine him losing New York. I don't know. I mean, Pennsylvania or Maryland, I would put into that same category. On the other hand, you could see Cruz and Kasich peeling off delegates in those states. I mean, I know that we mock ourselves for being too attached to the brokered convention scenario, but I feel like that's more plausibly what the Republican Party is marching toward because I can't imagine that Cruz is going to win those states, really stop Trump, but you can see him just like preventing Trump from getting to that magic number of 1237. And then it's hard to see how the party will allow Trump to be its nominee, given the entrenched opposition to him, even though he obviously also is going to have his supporters vociferously backing him. The climb to 1270, sorry, 1237, he, Trump would have to win 57% of the remaining delegates. That would represent operating for him at the highest range of his effectiveness in the race so far. So he would have to be at his absolute best. And we've seen him take on water. I mean, whatever effect it may have had in Wisconsin, we know it had some effect, his bad last week. And we know that all the money spent against him had some effect. So getting 57% is going to be quite hard for him because even in states like New York, there are two downsides for one Cruz and to a lesser extent Kasich can grab some delegates out of New York if they play it tactically smart. So they can still strip delegates away from Trump. And then you have the other battle that's taking place, which is at these state conventions where the states determine who the actual human beings are. And we've talked about this before, but who go to the convention are. Well, in New York, I believe it's the case that the campaigns have no input in who the delegates are who go to the convention. So it's very possible that while Trump may come out with a bunch of first ballot pledged to delegates who have to vote for him on the first ballot, that those delegates on the second ballot and third ballot and fourth ballot would um, potentially not be for Trump and would then be for someone else. And he has no ability to influence that. In the, all the other states that are coming up, Colorado, there's a state convention coming up. The battle is who, what human being, living, breathing person gets into that delegate slot and who do they ultimately go for? Why, Emily, do you think that John Kasich remains in this race? It is seems pretty obvious that he's he's not going to win a lot of states. He almost certainly won't win the eight that is nominally required to be put in for nomination at the convention. He's you know did very poorly in Wisconsin, which is a state that's quite near his his home state of Ohio. But he doesn't seem he doesn't seem at all um, deterred. He has his constituency. I mean, you imagine he must have people at every event or whenever he's on the phone who say, you're the only sane person up there. You got to stay in there to be the standard bearer for the race. And he 
is a politician, and I, it seems to some degree to be an ego trip for him to stay in. And then the other thing is, I imagine he's either running for vice president or has some other idea of his long-term position and power in the party. John, what do you think? Yeah, I don't know. I don't think he's going to be Donald Trump's vice president. I mean, I just can't imagine it. Not only can I not imagine it based on what he said, but also based on his temperament. And he What does... about Ted Cruz's vice president? No. Oh. Um... I guess maybe. I, I I mean, I don't know. You know, I, I think John Kasich, um, I think he likes to run things. I think, and also once you've been a governor running things, I think being vice president would be, uh, but maybe, you know, maybe he's, maybe he's run out of other job opportunities after a while and vice president looks attractive. Um, he would be a, he'd be a very hard guy to have as your vice president. He's just, he is not disciplined enough to be a vice president um, because of being vice president. Isn't he sort of Biden-esque in that sense? Uh, no, because he's actually run something. And though Biden ran his Senate office in a fashion and senators are used to being able to say whatever they want, it's a little bit different when you've been a governor of a state. So being a governor and being in charge has its own allure to anyone. Once you're in a position of power, it's hard to go back to not being the boss anymore. That's a true of a lot of people, particularly true of John Kasich, who just has a kind of Biden esque, but maybe even more so, kind of irrepressibility. One of the funny elements of the campaign this week has been Donald Trump sort of saying, I don't know if he's saying this directly or through one of his his spokespeople, that he's gonna he's going to now uh, put flesh on his policy bones. Um, that he's going to come out and give policy speeches with details. He, he, he the one example of this so far was his idea for paying for the wall, which was to tax remittances that people are sending back to relatives overseas, which is an insane idea, which is probably illegal, but certainly insane. Uh, do either of you have a, a sense that Trump could actually become a policy candidate, that he could come forth with specific ideas that are going to be uh, credible? The challenge for Donald Trump we saw on election night in Wisconsin, which is on the one hand, he has said he'll be more presidential and his campaign has said he's going to give policy speeches and that's going to show that he's more presidential. And then if you looked at his concession statement after the speech, it made several references to Lion Ted and how Ted is is worse than a puppet. He's a Trojan horse for the establishment who's trying to steal the nomination from me. There was nothing magnanimous in defeat in that concession speech. You can imagine no greater opportunity for Trump to show that he's presidential, that he has the temperament for the office, than if he had come out and given a concession speech that was more magnanimous, that was just showed all those things that that he and his advisors say they want to show. I mean, giving a policy speech will get a little coverage, but nothing like what would have been covered after the loss in Wisconsin. So the fact that he couldn't restrain on election night suggests that this is going to be a complicated process and that he's more likely to have one foot on the gas and one foot on the brake during this period of trying to look presidential. I think the other challenge for policy is policy is hard. The reason people don't talk about policy is it's complicated. And every time you make a decision, somebody gets upset by it. Now, it could be quote unquote policy like his Mexican wall thing, which is a mostly was a recapitulation of what he'd already put out. So 95% of it was that. The one thing that on remittances that was new, although I'm not sure that was even new, is that it does serve a kind of Trumpian purpose, which is he wants lots of people to fact check him on the wall stuff because all the voters here, in his view, and he's not totally wrong about this, is Trump wall, Trump wall, Trump wall, immigrants bad, Trump wall. 
So I think we're at the point with his campaign and others where, uh, and we've been at this point for a while, that fact-checking only helps him. Only he, He'd be happy to get in a big policy debate about how tough he's going to be on the border. And so if he can frame all of his policy speeches that way, in the sense that they create excitement and fact-checking around ideas that he wants to promote to his voters, then, then the policy march will be good for him. It won't show us presidential, but it'll be a smart political move. Emily, so I've been thinking about Ted Cruz as a potential presidential candidate, and I'm, I'm torn because on the one hand, Ted Cruz seems like, like a complete opportunist. He seems like somebody who has spent his entire life angling to, for this moment so he could make himself president. And therefore, if he were a general election candidate, he would trim his sails, change what he's doing, change his approach, go after some set of moderate voters just to win. On the other hand, his whole ethos, his entire pitch to the voter so far is that I'm the uncompromising conservative. Which do you think wins out with him? Is he going to be as conservative a general election candidate because he's going to be principled as he's been a uh, primary candidate, or is he going to just go for the win if he gets the nomination? I think he'll be almost as conservative. He'll make little steps that he thinks will not make him seem inconsistent so he can continue to hold that true conservative banner. But of course, he'll tack a bit to the middle because otherwise, you know, your numbers would seem so low that you become an embarrassment. I have no sense, though, that if he was actually elected president, he would govern from the middle. I think whatever tacking he does will be itself just a tactic. His ethos has been really clear for a long time and proven in his vote records and, you know, his dedication to shutting down the Senate. Just there's a level of commitment to a very um, clear set of ideas that I don't imagine in any sense he would um, move away from if he were actually president. John, we have a increasingly likely that there will be a contested convention. It is now, I would say, you know, like a very strong possibility leaning towards majority. What's your sense from the Republicans you're talking to about whether a contested convention is something that's manufactured so that Cruz gets the nomination or so that some other person gets the nomination? It's hard to say. There, So I, I think you're right. We're moving more towards a contested convention. You can see that to the extent that the establishment has a role here, it is in normalizing the idea of a contested convention. In theory, they shouldn't have to normalize it. It's been a part of Republican Party tradition going back for a very long time. Some of the great heroes in Republican politics either won or were huge fans of contested conventions, Ronald Reagan being the primary one, but also uh, Eisenhower having won through being better at the fight at a contested convention. However, 60% of Wisconsin voters who are not fans of Donald Trump, as we've already established, almost 60%, believe that whoever has the plurality of votes, even if they don't have the majority going into the convention, should get the nomination. So there will be a big, huge fight, but the Republican Party is trying to say, hey, you know, they're even briefing reporters on all the rules so that it won't see- seem like somebody's being robbed if it doesn't work out. Back to your original question. I think the the weight of the system would suggest a second ballot fight would likely go to Cruz, A, because he has a lot of delegates who are Cruz types, B, because he's been working the state conventions to put his bodies in those delegate slots, C, because people who are involved in Republican politics tend to be kind of movement people, which would put them a little closer, a little closer to Cruz, certainly closer to Cruz than Trump. 
Now, they could be movement people or establishment people, both of whom are against Trump, which is why this would be a group that would go to Cruz. But if they're more establishment type people, then they're going to be appealed to by probably not Kasich, but perhaps, you know, people have talked about somebody like Paul Ryan, who keeps saying no, 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 no. But as we saw from his acceptance of the speakership, you say no until it's handed to you, and then you say yes. And so it's possible, but that's a super long shot because then you not only have to get over Trump, you got to get over Cruz too. And the building enough of a public groundswell for that other person, I don't see how you build it big enough. Okay, now let's hear from our first sponsor this week, which is stamps.com. It would be amazing if the post office were open 24 hours a day. Think of it, you could go mail that package you've been meaning to send at 9 p.m. on a Tuesday night. Stamps.com has made that dream a reality. With Stamps.com, you can buy and print official U.S. postage right from your desk. No more time-consuming trips to the post office. Just use your own computer and printer to get the right postage for any letter or package. Plus, Stamps.com is more powerful than a postage meter at just a fraction of the cost. Right now, sign up for Stamps.com and use promo code GABFEST for a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer, including postage and a digital scale. Don't wait. Go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GABFEST. That's Stamps.com. Enter GABFEST. In other Wisconsin news on Tuesday, Bernie Sanders trounced Hillary Clinton in the Wisconsin primary. It was his seventh or so win in a row or seven out of eight. He's just won a lot of primaries recently, uh, won a lot of states. Not all of them have been primaries. Some have been caucuses. It's a very good, strong win. The Hillary backers say, of course, well, this is a very white state. This is another open primary state. So you had a lot of independents crossing over to vote for Sanders. And by the way, Hillary has a lot more votes than he does overall. And also Hillary still has a strong delegate lead. Sanders is likely to win again uh, in the Wyoming caucus. And uh, but then then there'll be New York. So, Emily, is the Sanders case for uh, the presidency significantly stronger than it was before Wisconsin? Huh? No, I don't think so. For the reasons you just said, I feel torn about how to think about the Democratic race. Part of me thinks the only thing that matters is the delegate math. and The rest of it is just noise. And you just like, see who has more and who's likely to get to the threshold. And it still seems like the answer to that question is Hillary Clinton. And part of me feels like she is not rolling through. We, I think many of us expected by now this race to be over and she would be the anointed candidate just waltzing to her coronation and that's not happening and so then you have to think like well, what does it mean that that's not happening does it really matter I feel like every time I've asked you guys that question you've said well you know those Sanders voters in these important swing-ish states will go to her anyway so she's not really that banged up and damaged and this is just taking longer because of the way the delegate math was constructed by the party. Sanders also didn't do himself any favors this week by giving this interview to the New York Daily News in which he didn't seem to have a really clear idea of how you would break up the big banks, one of the big things he rails about constantly. He was starting to look like someone who on policy grounds was a little thin. And, you know, that has been a theme, I think, at the debates. He has really good lines, but they don't necessarily 
go into the details the way Hillary Clinton's have. And that hasn't hurt him that much so far. But I don't know, maybe it will start to or at least it's going to be part of the reason that he can't really get a majority of the party. And then the final thing is, it to me, seems important that Clinton is still much stronger with minority voters since there's such a sense that, you know, Latino and black voters are important to the future of the Democratic Party. And there is a way in which he just hasn't shown that kind of broad appeal. The delegate math is still the problem. He's winning by huge margins. He's got all of the seven of eight of the last contests, but he's still behind her and the states coming up are states that are going to favor her. So until he starts, you know, if he keeps on this role and keeps shrinking the number of pledged delegates that she's got, you know, then he will have moved into a new category. But he's definitely got the wins and that and the excitement. And that's not great for her. But even leaving aside the question of the superdelegates, he's still got some work to do before all the numbers people will start to say, oh, yeah, he's got a shot. Remember when 538 was the thing that liberals turned to for solace and proof that Barack Obama was going to get elected and everything was going to be okay? 538's the one saying the numbers are are not good for Bernie Sanders. Can I ask actually a, a kind of crazy um, bank shot question, which is, so with the Democrats, there's so many super delegates that it's possible, not likely, but possible that Hillary doesn't get the convention with enough pledged delegates to get a majority without having super delegate support, right? Correct? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So is there a scenario in which neither of them gets the convention with a majority with enough of pledged delegates to have to have the majority from just the pledged delegates? So the superdelegates aren't going to be needed for whoever uh, whoever's going to win the nomination. And there's a compromise candidate. Is there any chance that they go to they say like, okay, well, we need somebody else and you go to Elizabeth Warren? Or is that just like no way? It's got to be one of these two. If Uh... Hillary can't get there, is there any chance that it's not Sanders? Because they both are, they're both flawed, right? Yeah, but I can't think of anybody who's not equally flawed who yeah. would be the consensus. And who hasn't won and amassed yeah. all this right. delegate support. Right. Okay. Why is Hillary doing so poorly? I don't just mean poorly in like she's not winning races, although she's not. It's that she has the most votes in this, in, in this entire campaign, and yet her campaign has, has cast no shadow. It feels like she's not even there. It's like people are voting for this name and this idea, but that she, if you look at where all of the energy and the interest in this campaign is, none of it is on her. I don't, why How is are you camp- measuring that? That's just like your gut instinct? Yes, it's my, I sniff it, Emily, just like last week when I <laughs> okay, sniffed Trump's fine. collapse and did Trump's collapse and start to happen? Right. Yes. Well, so trust <laughs> the plot's nose. You were more right than me last week, for sure. No, I don't know. I don't. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. I mean, maybe maybe people are fascinated by her. And I live in a place where there are not a lot of ads running. So maybe if you are in Wisconsin, there are lots of Hillary ads that are making you excited about Hillary. I have a sense of her being out there every day, working hard oh, the yeah. way she always does. I just feel like this campaign season does not favor the kind of pragmatic, problem-solving, like sensible roll up your sleeves candidate that she just is that's who she is it's it's not headline grabbing you know they're not going to like keep her on tv for 45 minutes because she's calling someone a liar when we get to the general do you guys think that okay in the general this kind of experience question will finally benefit that it hasn't mattered at all in the republican primary and it doesn't seem to matter even that much in the democratic primary where there's so much interest in this progressive agenda of sanders but in the general, is it, are people going to sort of retreat back to, well, we need somebody who can get up every day and, and do the job and not act crazy? Or are there, are there enough 
really rageful voters that this the experience is not going to help Hillary at all. No, I think the general election electorate is less liberal than the Democratic electorate, and therefore you would imagine them to be uh, more susceptible. And the polls right now that talk about general election matchups aren't really that helpful. The thing I'm interested in is why in the Democratic Party where simple solution Republican candidates uh, who just get people ginned up but don't talk about policy and don't have a lot of super specific policy positions, why they are universally derided and then why in the I mean, I know the answer to this, but and then why on the Democratic <laughs> side, Hillary Clinton, who let's leave aside what you think about the specificity of Bernie Sanders's plans and the what was exposed in the New York Daily News interview. But Hillary Clinton is by far the more detail oriented. She is sort of on the Republican side. It was Jeb Bush who did this and a lot of good. It did him all those white papers and all of that <laughs> thinking through of the policy and politics of getting hard things done in a system that. You get no points for doing your homework, essentially, and that when it's in the Democratic Party, you get no points for doing your homework. I mean, of course, Hillary Clinton does get some points. She does still have more votes than Bernie Sanders, after all. But in the kind of excitement level, many of the people who are excited about Bernie Sanders find it you know, laughable that on the Republican side, you have people who can rise even though they got, you know, they're just making these outrageous claims. Right. It's hypocrisy, John, or something. Democrats like platitudes, too, at least some of them. And Sanders does particularly well with less educated white voters. Right. When your guy is when your guy is offering simple solutions, it's uh, it's common sense. Right. It's or it's uh, fundamental moral moral truths about America. When the other guy is doing it, he's an idiot. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's it's that. And of course, <laughs> and, of course and, and, you know, and everyone cites Ronald Reagan to their benefit. It's that Ronald Reagan had very simple ideas and became a very effective president because he hired smart people around him, mostly, who, who implemented some of those ideas. Yeah. And so then when we're really looking at presidents, does it matter more that they know how to steer the ship or that they know how to make sure everybody stays fixed to the same star? Which is more important? And are they and they're not mutually exclusive. One of the ways you keep everybody fixed on the star is by being attentive and alive to what the details are that are being done in the various little maneuverings that get the ship going. Uh, you got to know how to hire people to steer the ship towards the star. Uh, you can't just think, oh, all day long about the stars. So which is more? Well, there's no in, answer to that. No, I mean, there, there isn't. There's, I mean, the FDR is what's the line about FDR? It's that he had a second class intellect and a first class temperament. Right. And so he Jimmy Carter, great details man, but problematic president. Barack Obama seems to me to be both. Barack Obama is a details person, but he's a he's like a big picture person as well. Um, Bill Clinton had both. And by the way, Barack Obama, we shouldn't forget, has said. Wait, Bill Clinton had both. No, Bill Clinton was not a good details person. Sorry. John. Bill Clinton well, was he a was details a, person. He wasn't he a good. Was, he wasn't necessarily a great manager yeah. of people, but he was. Yeah. A, he was master details. Right. No, and that. But that's a. You know, somebody should do a series about this. Uh, there's, you know, the, obviously the different uh, kinds of attributes, and he was not not the management keep the the place. Uh, systematic and organized to execute. He was bad at execution. He knew lots of details. He knew which star he wanted to go to, but he couldn't get, um, you know, the ship. <laughs> he couldn't get the ship. Uh, although, the you know, in the end, I mean, you know, also he was screwing in, the ship. In the end, um, there are a lot of people looking screwing at the internship. It, the um, let's just, let's just pause. John is about to. <laughs> no, no, I think that's fine. Hold forth on we the should... brilliant economic policy of the Clinton era and how it is under under celebrated. Um, I was pausing in there to allow David to bask in his um, 
bad pun. pun. Um, usually, that's uh, I'm on the other end of that. Um, mm. One of the things that that critics of Democratic critics of Obama have said from the Clinton era is that Clinton knew how to get would get to a deal, even if the deal was imperfect, in a way that was more. He was more interested in the final deal than Obama has been. Um, and I just think that is just such a completely shallow reading of how dramatically partisan politics right. change. I think that's fair. You don't even have to agree with with what you could just say. You just that that it isn't the same when you had John Chafee, a Republican, coming to offer and make a deal with you. That that person doesn't exist in the in the current set of in the current environment. So I think you're right. That's a uh, that comparison doesn't teach us much. But anyway, at the end of the day, the energy, everything we're measuring about Bernie Sanders is basically his energy for a certain set of topics almost, more than ideas. I mean, is is it – do people, when they hear breaking up the big banks, do they think, yes, that is the solution I want? Or do they really think, I want a rebalancing, which is really about income inequality. It's not about the solution. It's just that breaking up the big banks – and Glass-Steagall in the same way has taken on this kind of totemic importance in terms of the underlying topic, not the actual specificity of the solution, in which case the specificity of the solution doesn't matter. It's not unlike the wall. Right. I think that's true. What is the real appeal of Sanders here? It's that he's not in the pocket of Wall Street. He didn't go give speeches that he's refusing to release the transcripts from. And he's clean. He can rail against them. And you're right. That interview just reminded people of that connection and the fact that he didn't really know exactly how it would work. I mean, I bet most voters don't think that he's going to actually break up those banks. They just want to know they're voting for someone who's not like already compromised. And I think Donald Trump did the best had the shortest description of this phenomenon at the Iowa State Fair when he basically said, you know, voters don't care about my policies. They just know that I'll get it done when I'm in there. Now, Sanders isn't running on the I'll get it done because he doesn't really have a huge record of accomplishment. The getting of it done. But he does know, I mean, it's about basically who's going to have you in mind when nobody's watching. And Sanders's claim about Clinton is that her donors are going to be the, what are going to influence her when nobody's watching. And what voters see from him is, I don't know what he's going to do. He may not even know where the broom closet is, but I know he's going to have me in mind when when nobody's watching. That reminds me of this question I've been dying to ask you guys. There was I, what to me seemed like a strange kind of postmortem for Bernie Sanders in the New York Times this week where his own campaign people were looking back at the mistakes he'd made. But what really struck me, there was an unbelievable quote in it from Bob Kerry, the, I believe, former senator from Nebraska, who was uh, noted in the story as a Clinton supporter and then said, when the full story of the Clinton donations to the global initiative, the Clinton global initiative and Hillary's Wall Street speeches really comes out, it's going to be a disaster for her to the extent that the Sanders people are going to wonder why they didn't run that table. And I mean, it was amazing because I kept looking and being like, really, that was what Carrie said as a Clinton supporter. But I also wonder if you guys think that's true. And there's just like, it, it just made it feel like there's some big shoe left to drop in this card that Sanders really hasn't played. Ooh, you got shoes and cards. <laughs> Sorry, mixing of metaphors. Uh, I was well, so excited. Yeah, I had to give you two. So the question is whether that's already, let me throw in another one, priced into the market, which is to say that like everybody who's voting for Sanders has that somewhere. What we were trying to put our finger on earlier, which is why is there, what's the nature of the lingering problem that ails Hillary Clinton? I think the the FBI investigation, criminal investigation into her emails and the foundation 
though it may not be articulated, is a part of it that's out there. How much more, how many more votes would Sanders get by really grinding in on that? Would he get a lot more? Or does he have and continue to have the enthusiasm he has by his single-minded focus on income inequality and the, and the imbalances? I don't know the answer. We will find out the answer. Can I ask one question of you guys? Do you think it's out of bounds when Hillary Clinton says, and now in New York it's gotten even more raw, but where she holds an event with the families of the victims of the Aurora shooting in Colorado and basically makes a link between Sanders' inability and to say gun manufacturers should be held liable and uses the families of those who've been killed by gun violence. Do you feel like that is totally inbounds, that it's inbounds but represents the kind of really rawest edge of attack in New York now because Sanders, because of his position on, on liability, the daughter of the principal at Sandy Hook Elementary has said, shame on you, Bernie Sanders, uh, for your position. It seems totally inbounds. Totally, totally in- fine. Totally fine. I yeah, interviewed I mean, a bunch of those families a couple of years ago, and which like left a devastating mark on me. But what one thing that struck me is how once they decide they want to speak, um, they really think through what that opportunity is and how they're going to use it. So I guess I feel like as long as they're speaking out and making using the campaign as an opportunity for them to have a platform, it's totally fine. Right. I think it would be that it would be seedy if. She used images of Sandy Hook families or victims without their buy-in. If you use them without them essentially speaking out themselves. But I don't think if they're willing to stand, if they want to stand up with her, by all means. Seems totally legit. Okay. We're going to leave Bernie Sanders there. Now a word from our next sponsor this week, which is Audible.com. With so much happening in the news and in this presidential race... Sometimes it's nice just to tune out for a while. When you want to give yourself a break from reality, let Audible be your destination. Audible has more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Take Audible with you wherever you go by listening on your smartphone, computer, or tablet. And choose from an incredible variety of titles, such as Endurance, Shackleton's Incredible Voyage by Alfred Lansing. In 1914, this is one of the great stories ever told. 1914, the British ship Endurance set sail for the South Atlantic only to be trapped and destroyed by ice. Lansing delves into the leadership of Sir Ernest Shackleton, the determination of his men, and their harrowing thousand-mile voyage for survival. It's just an amazing story. You will want to listen to it on Audible. And you can find it, this book, or books of any genre that you like at audible.com. And as a special offer to our listeners, you can get a free audiobook of your choice and a 30-day trial today by signing up at audible.com slash gabfest. That's audible.com slash gabfest. Evanwell v. Abbott, the one-person, one-vote case regarding Texas redistricting came, was uh, settled this week by a Supreme Court 8-0. to zero. Strong defeat for conservatives, or was it? We'll find out. The <laughs> court held that states couldn't be barred from using the total count of people as a basis for legislative district apportionment. The court, however, did not rule that the states had to use the method of counting everyone. It left open the possibility they could use registered voters or eligible voters as how they were dividing up their legislative districts and didn't settle that. So we don't know whether that's possible. So Emily, what did the Evanwell plaintiffs want and what did the 
the Supreme Court slap back? The Evanwell plaintiffs wanted the court to say that states are not allowed to use total population count when they create voting districts for state legislative office, and that instead the states have to use eligible voters or actual people who vote. I think we talked about this when the case was argued. It raises this really interesting philosophical question about democracy. Are we Is the constitutional protection for one person, one vote about it does it mean representing everybody who lives in a place, including the kids, including the undocumented immigrants, including the um, former or current felons who are disenfranchised? Or does it mean just representing the people who actually can elect you or even go and actually pull the lever? That was the sort of larger question. And what the Supreme Court said was that states can use total population count, as all 50 of them currently do. So that seems like kind of a slam dunk. And what's more interesting to me about this case are all these unresolved questions, which you talked about earlier. We don't know. The court um, held back from saying that states cannot use some other measure. Justice Alito and Justice Thomas basically invited states to go out, some state to go out and change the way they allocate legislative districts go to eligible voters and then see if that is constitutional. So it was in some ways a six to two decision, not in terms of the holding, but the reasoning. And in some ways, it was impossible to fathom what anyone thought other than maybe Justice Ginsburg, who wrote the opinion, um, in the sense that she might have gotten this nice six justice majority together by only a little bit showing her hand that she thinks that you basically have to use total population count. She That's not the holding of the case. So it was like one of those moments of like, all right, and now another day. It is the next case that will could really resolve the fundamental question. And maybe what's interesting about this case is just that Edward Bloom, this um, conservative who's been funding other lawsuits like affirmative action challenges, that he's put on the table this issue that wasn't there before and that an idea of like completely upending the whole way um, the government states count when they redistrict. That was a, a pretty extreme um, conservative-driven assault since it would benefit Republican office holders. But okay, that didn't work. But now let's see if like the more supposedly middle ground step will now look more possible and palatable because of this like more aggressive challenge. Are there states that have now have legislation, ALEC-written legislation in the works to make it an eligible voter standard or a, a registered uh, voter standard? For for representation, for determining representation. Yeah, so that they'll now, now that the Supreme Court didn't say it was, that they couldn't try it, the Supreme Court basically invited them to try it and, and bring a case. Are there states that are ready to pass those laws and and take a case back up to the Supreme Court? I am sure someone has drafted that law. I'm not I don't know if Alex and Texas, the legislature is talking about it. And Texas took a position in this case where it was defending its current method, which is the like old fashioned 50 state tried and true count everybody. But they also said, hey, Supreme Court, you should you should let us do it the other way, too. 
Um, so I think Texas is signaling that um, there are for sure there are Republican politicians there eager and moving in that direction. And it's hard to see why any red state wouldn't start trying to do that, because it's one of those process questions that has huge potential implications, especially in border states with big populations of undocumented immigrants and and their children. That really changes the population. So it seems like a no brainer that one of them. would. This try only it. applies to state legislatures, right? It doesn't apply to federal yes. congressional apportionment, right? right. Which is yeah. that's right. Which actually federal congressional apportionment in terms of the Senate. Is against is one, in the one. Constitution. Well, I know, but it's also a. <laughs> well, it's not one person. It's one not one vote. person. It's not one, one person. Vote. One vote. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. congressional districts yes. are, are one person, one vote theoretically. Explain, right. Emily. Wa- walk people through like how this plays out. Why this is important. It's important because in states, especially Texas and Arizona, possibly New Mexico, but also like some places like Colorado, where. There are big populations of undocumented immigrants and their families and kids all in one place. If a state changed to eligible voters or actual voters, you would see a significant shift of political power toward rural districts and rural areas that elect Republicans. And so think about Texas. It's destined to go purple in some relatively short number of years because of the rising Hispanic population. Well, this would prevent it from going purple, right? As Hispanic people were there in enough numbers to swing more elections. Well, explain how that happens, though, because I think if I'm listening, I got no idea how the power shifts. Basically, if you count all human bodies, you would have more districts. And those districts that you would have more of would have would end up well no you'd have, have district you'd have urban districts which you have fewer voters fewer actual voters which are democratic right. districts if you do it in a way that doesn't do one person one vote no if you if you do it in the way that it counts everybody yeah you have these let's say urban districts with high populations of immigrants non-voting non-eligible immigrants where you have only 50,000 actual voters right. in that district whereas then you have rural districts where you have 150,000 voters because there's so few immigrants. And so the rural vote is is diffused. Diluted. Right, because the rep- – but but my point is that if you count one person, one vote, your urban district that's full of non-citizens is going to end up actually now, if the population gets large enough, ends up being two districts because the uh, representation is based on population. Yeah. So you yes. end up having yes. more you power. Have more districts. For, you have more districts. More districts. Have and the districts few, that you have have, have fewer have more, voters, but more. Well, fewer voter, quote unquote, voters, voters. but more human beings. Yeah. Um, yes. But in but if you have two districts that are likely to go Democratic, that's better for the Democrats right. than the Republicans. Exactly. Yes. The I don't I, I'm still hung up on the philosophical question, which is I don't think is actually has to do with the how you apportion. But is it your job as a legislator to represent people who are living illegally in your district? Is it your job to represent tourists who are in your district? Do you owe service to every single person who lives in your district equally? Like does the, does the person who lives there illegally uh, deserve as much of your attention as the person who is a voting legal citizen? Which I think is it's a genuine question. Right. I, I actually really don't like this argument that um, you could be in government and just like cross off all the people who can't vote for you, like everybody under the age of 18. Right. But it seems to me that even if you think that the eligible voters deserve a greater share because of that act, 
there are already so many incentives in politics to give them a greater share of attention. I mean, who goes around trying to, you know, court disenfranchised felons and undocumented immigrants and children? Nobody. So I just feel like we already have that. And this is a question of whether they have any shred of standing as citizens and residents. Did did you guys read that there was a really interesting story, which I think was in Vox by Dylan Matthews, about targeting of voters by campaigns and the campaigns target based on lists that they have. But these lists leave out a huge chunk of people who tend to be minorities, who tend to move around a lot, who tend to, you know, have less of a fixed address or like just to have less paperwork. And so there's a whole 30 percent of registered voters who don't even get targeted by campaigns in a systematic way because the campaign it's just not worth it for campaigns to try to find them because these people have moved around. And the, those. Yeah, those this is an argument. Go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no I was going to say it's a problem that that hurts that affects Democrats much more than the Republicans. Right, and they were saying this this case this article was saying well her, if Sanders had a way to motivate those thirty percent who are more likely to vote for him he'd be in even stronger shape. This is an argument that I've been hearing from Democratic politicians in the South lately, and there's a new book I think it's I haven't read it or and I don't have it in my hand, but I think it's called Brown is the New White, and the idea is that there's all this untapped potential in minority communities that the Democrats are just like leaving and that they should move toward trying to mobilize these minority voter populations more than they have, and especially outside of the like the city wards where we're used to thinking of the black vote as being really strong, that they need to go beyond that. And that if they did, they could um, make up for their loss among the kinds of white voters who um, are going to Trump and who the Democrats have been losing in previous elections. And now let's hear from our other sponsor this week, which is Tracker. Technology has made everything smart, but losing your stuff still makes smart people feel really stupid. That's why there's Tracker. Tracker makes losing things a thing of the past. Tracker is a coin-sized device that locates misplaced keys, wallets, bags, computers, anything in seconds. I had Tracker on. My wife lost her diabetes case where she keeps her diabetes equipment. We found it last night in a trice, in an instant. You pair Tracker to your smartphone, attach it to anything, and find its precise location with the tap of a button. In a lot of cities, bike theft is a big problem. Put Tracker on your bike, and you'll always know exactly where it is. And Tracker has a special deal for you today. Right now, get 30% off your entire order. Just go to thetracker.com right now and enter promo code GABFEST. That's T-H-E-T-R-A-C-K-E-R.com. Enter promo code GABFEST. Now let's do cocktail chatter. When you're contemplating how the New York primary is going to turn out and you're having a perhaps a New York beer or New York wine, or some some artisanally uh, distilled New York whiskey, or New York uh, some New York spirit. Can you have New York whiskey? Can whiskey be? Is whiskey one of those places that can only exist? It's in? not like bourbon. I think you can have New York whiskey. You, can you have can't New have New York bourbon. Okay. Right? Is this somebody? You can't have New York champagne. You definitely can't have New York champagne. No, I'm going to stake my claim there. <laughs> um, New York is the champagne of states, however, or something. What will you be chattering about, John? A second in a series, in a consecutive series of stuff that other people know, but that I am learning and found interesting was the, um, in doing some uh, uh, work on George Wallace recently, there is a great two-part American experience documentary on him, um, the backbone of which is a great book by Dan Carter called The Politics of Rage. 
Anyway, it's the whole story of Wallace's life and his political phenomenon. But I guess I hadn't paid that much attention to his shooting in 1972 when he was a candidate rolling through success in the Democratic primaries. And the guy who shot him, Arthur Bremer, is just, I don't know, such a haunting character. So and what's amazing about this documentary is they have all of this footage and pictures of Bremer at the various times he tried to kill Wallace. And Bremer was basically trying to kill either Wallace or Nixon because he felt jilted by this woman, and he felt essentially jilted by all of, um, you know, he was basically like what would have been in the old days called a nerd and was derided for it, and he kept a diary. But in the diary, he he wrote in this very lucid and engaging way about how he was going to plan these assassinations. And basically, the deal was that he was going to do this and finally win the attention of um, this woman who had not, who had originally been interested in him and was not interested in him. Anyway, so I would encourage you to go watch the footage, which um, includes Wallace's wife talking about what it was like to see him shot and on the ground, and the footage of her um, jumping on top of him to shield him from getting shot again. Um, because the Secret Service that had been protecting him had been themselves shot. Um, there's just a lot going on in the in the documentary. But then also Bremer, who's now out and living somewhere in Maryland, which I didn't know. Right, he's alive. So, <clears throat> he's alive and living somewhere in Maryland. I think he has to stay in Maryland as a as a um, wow uh, condition of his release. So that was one thing that I found extraordinary. And also, I didn't realize that Bremer's diary was the inspiration for the character Travis Bickle. I mean, as you're reading it and watching it, you think, oh, this is just like Travis Bickle in Robert De- who was played by Robert De Niro in Taxi Driver. But one of the things in the documentary they say is that basically Bremer was an outgrowth of the sense of violence and confrontation that Wallace encouraged in his rallies and in his rhetoric. And that, of course, somebody like Bremer would be kind of attracted to it. And whether you buy that idea or not, that he's sort of pulled to this kind of uh, violent moment and that, that that Wallace kind of engaged in this kind of thing. The idea that basically Bremer becomes the inspiration for Bickle and then Bickle in Taxi Driver becomes the motivating factor for John Hinckley, whose decision to shoot President Reagan was in part to appeal to Jodie Foster, who was the young prostitute in Taxi Driver. Just that chain of custody from you know, Wallace's incitement to Bremer, to Bremer's diary, to Bremer's diary going to Taxi Driver, that then influencing Hinckley to shoot Reagan um, is an interesting thing. That is, that's that's a good one, dude. That's a good one. The fact that Arthur Bremer's alive is amazing. And I would all really encourage- Sir Hans, Sir Hans alive too, right? I believe so, yeah. The, assass- uh, the person who assassinated Bobby Kennedy in uh, 1968 also, or not also, but in the Wallace Rand in 68. The Politics of Rage is also just a great book about if you want to get your head around the complex story of Wallace, who at the end of his life wrote a note to Bremer, by the way, in um, in jail and said, Dear Arthur, your shooting me in 1972 caused me a lot of discomfort and pain. I'm a born-again Christian. I love you. I've asked our Heavenly Father to touch your heart, and I hope that you will ask him for forgiveness in your sin of your sin, so you can go to heaven like I'm going to heaven. I hope that we can get to know each other better. We've heard of each other a long time. Please let Jesus Christ be your Savior. Bremer didn't reply. Wow. That's that's a good one, dude. Mm. <laughs> Emily, do you have a chatter that is the equal? Or I do. Or I have, exceder I have a, of that one? 
No, I have a chatter. But first, I found the book I was referencing. It's called Brown is the New White. Um, It's by Steve Phillips. The subtitle is How the Demographic Revolution Has Created a New American Majority. It came out in January. And the person who recommended to me is Stacey Abrams, who's the minority leader in the state of Georgia. My plan to chatter is... Invite her to our live show. Oh, that's such a good idea. I will. Um, My planned chatter is about another book called The Mayor by Mary Gateskill, which I really liked this book. It's a book that... Um, has is told in quite short chapters from mostly the vantage point of um, a girl. I think she, in the beginning of the book, she's like 11. She's from a really poor neighborhood in New York City. She's um, from the her family's from the Dominican Republic. And she goes in, on a fresh air fun trip to a nicer part of New York and develops this long-term relationship with um, a woman who doesn't have any kids of her own um, who lives there. And so it's their perspectives. And it's, it's it, and then it's about horses. Horses are not my favorite thing, but the horses kind of worked as a vehicle for exploration in this book. And what struck me the most was the um, care and empathy of the portrayals of both of these characters. They're really different. They come from different worlds. The ginger grown-up character in particular could have seemed quite pathetic, but um, she doesn't. And... Um, I just totally gripped me. So The Mayor by Mary Gateskill. I'm not sure if it's out in paperback yet, but I bet it will be soon. Is the word you're saying mayor or mare? Mare, like the horse. Okay. M-A-R-E. Sorry. Um, I couldn't couldn't quite tell. You're not a horse person. <laughs> like You're adamantly not a horse person? She's, or she's just not a centaur. It doesn't. You're I'm not left- actually <laughs> physically a horse. You're not. I'm not physically a horse, but also, you know, there's like a whole, perhaps both of your daughters missed out on this, but there's a whole like girls and horses Mm -hmm. thing, which is fatiguing and um, can be kind of obsessive and I think plays a strange part in our culture. And so the idea of a girl's obsession with a particular mare, I'm skeptical. But this time I was kind of into it, even though I didn't even really think that it was super realistic. It just um, worked anyway. I would probably write a novel called The Mayor, which would be about my obsession with Michael Bloomberg. Um, <laughs> I have uh, two chatters. First, <laughs> did you just get that? No, or you just no, decided to no, laugh I like just, 10 seconds no, later? No, I just, I, I, I know I just was looking around at the depot where we had found ourselves on our collective journey and wondering <laughs> Come on, how God's favorite name we got here. That was my favorite moment of the sure, show. No, I got, but somehow something has happened to send us through a vortex that's assigned you the role of making bad puns on the show. I know. It's very um, unsettling that yeah. now John has like handed off that role to you. Uh, I'm sure it'll. I'm, I'm sure he'll re- seize it. I'm uh, gonna rest it back. He will yeah. grab that Torah. Yeah, yeah. I am not in co- in the race. A team of horses could not take that from me. Um, so I have two quick chatters. One, don't forget, it's Obscura Day on April 16th. I'm log rolling for my wonderful uh, organization, Atlas Obscura, on April 16th. All around the world, we're doing micro adventures and explorations and tours. And wherever you are, I'm sure there's something fantastic happening uh, near you. I'm going to be going to see a Civil War amputation on a on a medical dummy. That's going to be good. I'm going to be leading a tour of Fort DeRussi here in Washington. Um, there's incredible stuff in New York. So go to atlasobscura.com slash obscura day um, to line up your obscure day adventure because it, it'll be fun next Saturday, April 16th. 
And my real chatter is about uh, a podcast. So I was talking to GabFest uh, listener and and friend, Aaron Eckroth, and he mentioned a, a podcast to me I hadn't heard of called Tanis, T-A-N-I-S. And I thought, okay, that sounds cool. Totally gripped by it. It's in the spirit. Uh, I think it's by the people who make the black, black tapes, which I haven't heard. But it's in the spirit of uh, Limetown or The Message. It's one of these eerie, fictional, uh, what's going on here, conspiracy theory podcasts pretending to be uh, documentary radio. Um, totally gripping. A little bit hokey. Uh, but I, I all I want to do is listen to Tana. So uh, thank you, Aaron, for the recommendation. And um, I commend it to all of you. Before we get to our credits, uh, Slate has a great job open, and they've asked us to tell you about it. The director of strategy and audience development job is open. That's the person who's going to help Slate figure out how to expand their coverage and their audience, and uh, you get to work with wonderful people, and you should uh, consider doing that job. You can go to slate.com slash strategy, slate.com slash strategy. Our interns, El Biscard Church. Our producer today is Dan Bloom. Thank you, Dan. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcast. Annie Bowers is the chief content officer for Panoply, the network we're a part of. And you can go to iTunes.com slash Panoply to check out all of the Panoply shows. Our show page is Slate.com slash GabFest. Our Facebook page is Facebook.com slash GabFest. Our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest. Our email address is GabFest at Slate.com. Please come to our Atlanta show, slate.com slash live to get tickets for that. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We'll talk to you next week. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.